You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, a podcast hosted by me, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps online course creator, consultant, and a Docker captain. This podcast contains clips from my weekly YouTube live show, where I host a real-time Ask Me Anything style chat with guests and anyone who shows up on YouTube chat, many of whom are students of my Docker courses. You can find out more information, including show notes for this episode at brettfisher.com slash podcast. That's B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R dot com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I take viewer questions on all sorts of container topics, including how to run two processes in a single container, proxying your incoming connections with traffic, proper image tagging for automation, and how to make Docker Compose start up services in a specific order, along with a lot of other questions and answers. It was a fun time. And as a reminder, this podcast is listener-supported by those of you that have bought my Docker, Swarm, and Kubernetes courses. If you're already one of my 120,000 students, I thank you so much for your support. You can get coupons for those courses at my website, brettfisher.com. That's B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R.com. We're launching more videos and updates and a whole new Kubernetes mastery course coming soon, which you can get notified with my newsletter, which is also at brettfisher.com. This episode is sponsored by Manning Publications, an independent publisher of top-quality books and videos for software developers. Manning's books are written by the experts, such as community leaders, distinguished academics, and technology creators. When you're learning from Manning, you're learning from the best. Manning has books on Docker and DevOps topics, including bestsellers like Docker in Action. In fact, I actually had the authors of Docker in Action on this podcast a few months back, and I was impressed by the amount of quality content they were able to shove into just one book. I've got a Manning coupon code for you to get 40% off your first order, so go to manning.com and use code poddocdev19 at checkout. That's P-O-D-D-O-C-D-E-V-19 at the checkout. But you don't have to memorize that. Just remember you can get this coupon and other show notes for the episode in any podcast player that shows you the notes, and this is episode 49, so you can also get them at podcast.brettfisher.com slash 49. On to the show. All right. Supervisor D plus um, unicorn. Or is it gunicorn? Is the G silent? I never know. I never hear anyone pronounce it, so I call it gunicorn. All right. So uh, this is a scenario, and there's other scenarios like this, like... Um, maybe you'd want Nginx on every one of your node apps. Maybe you need Nginx in, or Apache in front of PHP. Um, in this case, this is Python's Gunicorn and you need Nginx in front of it. So if you're doing Swarm, the way that I prefer to do this in Swarm is to bundle both things in the same container image. And I know that Docker um, preaches this as an anti-pattern. But in some cases, it's the simplest way to do it. And I use Supervisor D because it's nice and simple. You can actually see this setup. Uh, I believe I have it in here. Mm, do I have a supervisor in here? I know I have it over here. I'm just going to go to... Yeah. 
So this one's a little dated. Uh, it's not completely finished. I never really got to finishing it. And then it, uh, lots of other Laravel and PHP solutions came out that are probably better than mine. But in here is an example of me taking a supervisor D file and starting up um, PHP FPM and then Nginx in front of it. And they're running in the same container. And what the, the challenge with all this is that one, it makes your Docker images bigger and more, a little bit more complex. And then it's, you got to be careful to make sure that if one thing fails in the container, that the container itself needs to be able to fail. Because when we do monitoring of containers, we typically are doing them at the container level. We don't normally go into multiple processes in the container and then monitor them separately, right? So in this case, when you're using Nginx and PHP FPM, it adds a, a little bit of a complexity there. But in my experience, that level of complexity and just making sure that you can monitor things like you can actually monitor supervisor d itself through an endpoint i'm not sure if i turn that on here um yeah i don't think i do i might just have the sockets but you can technically turn on an endpoint for that uh for monitoring you can, you can monitor nginx itself and then if you want to you can monitor your uh your fpm your php fpm solution so if you were doing that level of monitoring, then that kind of gets around that level of complexity, right? Ideally, the easiest way is to have separate containers. But the problem with Swarm is Swarm doesn't have the concept of taking two containers and keeping them together all the time on the same machines. It just doesn't have that yet, and I really wish it did. If you get to that level and that's just you're just not willing to bundle those into the same container, I have done it in worldwide production video hosting solutions, and it actually we we started with separate containers on each node, but it the level of complexity of making sure they were talking to the, the local one and not one on another machine and to reduce the latency and all that, we ended up just bundling them in the same container. And it worked. We, we didn't have really, that I can recall, any major issues. Nginx tended to be pretty stable, so whenever there was problems and crashing, it was always our code in PHP, right? It was always our code. Nginx usually was fine. So we never really had levels of issues like that. So, uh, But with Kubernetes, you, you have the concept of pod, which is designed to solve this problem by ensuring that if you want to have multiple containers like Unicorn and Nginx, you can have those in the same YAML file that's a part of your pod uh, spec, and that will they will always be together. And in fact, they can see each other through the local host. They get the same IP address. It's It has that layer of abstraction. Swarm tries to be simpler about it, but in being so simple, it unfortunately doesn't have an easy way to do that. So I just bundle them together. So... Um, it might be an anti-pattern. It's something that I have done in the past and have not regretted it. So um, you can actually see in this PHP repo, I do that in the Docker file. I have a base Docker file that creates just a generic PHP Nginx combo, and it adds in specific versions. It's a little dated now. Um, yeah, it's a year old. Uh, but I, you can see that I specify the versions here, and then it installs all, the, all those in this co uh, container image. And then I use that container image um, oh, <laughs> uh, when I create custom apps. So this app, this would actually be the, the container image that takes that base and then copies the code in the actual source code for that particular app in case you have a PHP, multiple PHP apps, right? Uh, and it does little things like setting up SSH so I can do things like get clones and if I need to do that in here. Um, yeah, so. That's a little bit of a setup. I don't yet do multi-stage there. I should just totally update this repo with multi-stage whenever I can find the time to do that. I would love a PR if you're someone who's in the PHP and you have a preferred setup and you want to take what I've got and turn it into a multi-stage setup that would probably reduce image size and make things easier. Um, by all means.
PRs are welcome. All right, next question. Uh, traffic versus Nginx usability and security. Uh, so it depends. It's a consulting answer. It depends. Uh, Nginx is tried and true, been around forever. Uh, it's, it's small. It's nimble. There's tons of documentation out there. There's tons of examples. And so, you know, if I was doing something where, uh, like, for example, like we just talked about PHP or Unicorn or, um, you know, maybe maybe in, if I wanted to do Nginx with Node, which I don't normally do, but if you did, I mean, maybe do that because that, you know, there's config files that are pre-configured. It's a, you're doing it for a single use. Uh, if you need to actually host a website, traffic doesn't do that. Traffic is a pure proxy. It's designed, not necessarily exclusive to containers, but it was built during the container uh, revolution. And, and it, it's, it's a single binary, uses Go, the same programming language that almost all the container tools now are built in. And uh, so traffic is purpose-built for container proxies. So it's designed to spin up quick, shut down quick. It's designed to go get your certificates automatically if you want it to from Let's Encrypt. Uh, so free certificates automatically. So it has a lot of these bundled problems that are specific to containers and orchestrators built into traffic. Uh, Nginx, since uh, it's a multi-purpose tool, it can do websites, it can do proxying with caching. I don't believe traffic yet does caching. So if you, uh, I like to set up my Nginx with PHP on the back end, and I like, instead of splitting out my assets and like, you know, taking your static files and putting them into Nginx, I just put it all in the PHP and then I tell my Nginx to cache resources that are of type PNG or CSS and, you know, cache it for however long it needs to. And I prefer to do that because I found it to be a simpler setup than trying to bifurcate my different assets in my different repos. So, I, so Nginx does that for me, but I don't believe it, uh, traffic does uh, proxying. But I, it, when I can use traffic, I will prefer traffic because it has all these whiz-bang features like Let's Encrypt. Um, you know, and it's now they're, they're 2.0 that's almost ready for release is going to do some pretty cool stuff where it can try, it can proxy other types of connections, not just HTTP. So it gets to be similar to HA proxy, which can proxy Redis, you know, and other types of technologies, not just HTTP. As far as I know, Nginx is uh, specific to HTTP and HTTPS protocols. So, um, yeah. So anyway, it's, I guess it's more about the features, uh, Nginx, uh, typically doesn't have as many monitoring endpoints as something like HA proxy. Nginx t tends to limit that to your enterprise only Nginx. You have to pay for it. Traffic. Um, I, I don't really have a beat on comparison. The, the, the only reason I'm saying that is because I've had Nginx and HA proxy in production and I could get more, uh, out of HA proxy free, all of the different data points and things I needed to monitor, active connections, stuff like that. I could get that out of HA proxy. And with Nginx, I needed to pay for the enterprise license. And I haven't gone back and done a true comparison of traffic to Nginx, but that's, so that's something you might want to look out for on Nginx, but I use both. So I like both. Great question. Um, another question, you have two traffic containers in dog versus cat. Uh, Answer dog. I like it. Can I see, and I see they do different things, but I'm not sure I'm grokking it. Okay. So if we're going back to that file real quick, let's just go back to that file. Uh, but this is a quick answer. Um, on dog versus cat. So this uh, proxy global setup. Um, this traffic init 
is designed. I, I could probably, I should probably put a comment in here. Uh, what this one's for. The, this one is designed to set up the, the config for traffic, and it's going to store that in console. So I'm telling it, hey, take all these switches at the command line. Isn't that cool? By the way, you don't have to to provide it a, 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 a config file. You can just do it all by editing the command and use dash dash notation for options. And I love that because it prevents me from having to deal with config maps or configs in Swarm. Um, all right, so this is designed to set up this whole thing. This is the config. And then maybe if I wanted to do uh, let's encrypt TLS, I could enable that stuff. And then it tells it to go in and store this information in console. And then this one is the actual proxy and it knows to get its config from console. So that is the separation of powers there. One of the reasons that we do that is, um, so you'll notice that this one has uh, host ports enabled so that it gets direct access to the NICs. It doesn't even uh, use overlay for the, four, the 443 and the 80 coming in. It, it does host mode so that it gets better performance. And I also um, don't have that additional VIP routing going on there. And then, this one's set in global mode where the uh, this traffic init is not. It is only set up as just a standard single instance. And uh, it's not, let's see, where else? This one is set up to traffic console networks, right? And then this one has more networks in it. So uh, different sets of privileges. It's really about a combination of following uh, console guidelines or traffic guidelines for how to set up the console situation and then also making sure we have you know separated out our concerns and and stuff like that so this one is actually designed to stop once it's configured the cluster and then the one down here is running on every node and is providing the actual load balancing and proxying so hope that helps good question just a, uh, another question just wondering if you would recommend uh, what you would recommend when building prod images in CI with regards to using dash dash pull and or dash dash no cache. Um, building images in CI. So when you use dash dash pull, I'm guessing you're talking about um, you're not doing Docker compose, we're probably doing Docker build, right? Um, I would probably use pull. Uh, but I would definitely not use no cache. I, you want the cache. The cache is a good thing. I rarely, rarely, rarely ever need no cache. And that's only for troubleshooting and debugging. Um, Docker is really, really good at making sure that it will bust the cache, as we call it, if the files are are changed, right? If they've, if they've been changed, it works. I, I rarely see any issues with this. So you're losing all the benefit of fast builds if you get rid of that, no, if you put in that no cache, sorry, it's, it's a negative, it's a negative option. So you want the caching. Um, and then, um, you know, let's just show everybody. So in the case people aren't um, seeing what we're talking about here. So um, Docker build, Docker build. Oh. So there's an option. Uh, that will disable caching using the local image store of each layer, disable the caching. So it basically has to be, you build it from scratch. But you typically don't need that, especially when your packages haven't changed, right? If your NPM packages or your console or um, 
your composed packages, all those different packages, if those have already been pulled and installed, you don't want to have to redo that again. That's really unnecessary. Now, once you get into larger CI environments where you're doing multi-host, it, this gets comp complicated because different nodes could be building your images and you want to take advantage of image caching. So um, you're going to have to Google that. There's basically multiple ways you can config Docker, uh, especially if you're using the new builder, which is Docker Build X. That's the new builder. Uh, and so you, um, on the same topic of your questions about CI, I would be looking to move toward the 1903 release that just came out and then using the Build X because that's going to even spe speed up your build, uh, builds a lot more. It's going to basically allow multiple layers of your images to be built at the same time. And it can also build across architectures and even against remote Docker engines. Um, something that uh, if Michael's still on the call, like something that I would love to, for us to try at some point is setting up maybe something traditional like Jenkins, but not using Jenkins um, um, nodes, essentially the... Um, the worker nodes, the agents, sorry, I'm, losing, I'm forgetting the name terminology, the Jenkins agents. And instead of doing that, having Docker set up remote build agents and seeing if we can have a single node Jenkins setup that uses multiple other servers to do image building. Because at the end of the day, we're getting to the point where all we're doing, like we're, all we're doing is building images. Like our, our CI solutions are really just pulling code, building an image, and the image stages will do things like, you know, doing your, your, component testing and doing your integration testing with Docker Compose and stuff like that. So it runs, it runs a bunch of different commands, but they're nothing but Docker commands. And, uh, and then it does a Docker push at the end to push them up to the registry if it's successful. So it would be a neat, a neat experiment to see if we could simplify our CI solutions by using the new features of Docker as basically turning Docker into our CI, by, by just needing something on top of it to run uh, the jobs and, you know, to get the web hooks and to kick things off, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that would be fun. But uh, going back to the other thing, uh, pull. And the, doc the pull ensures that in case you're building and you're using latest. So here's my thing about pull. When you ask the question of pull, I'm going to post that question back up here. Th the fact that you would consider pull implies to me that you're maybe using latest or you're using a tag that gets reused uh, and, it, and you possibly are building images over and over and pushing them with the same tag because the problem that, you, the, that dash dash pull tries to solve is that if you're reusing the same tag, your local machine that's building may not know, may not have the latest version of that tag. But here's my, my issue with that you really shouldn't be reusing tags. And if you go just Google it, like don't reuse labels in Docker or tags in Docker, rather. don't use tags and reuse tags in Docker. If you go Google that, you will find so much stuff warning you against the perils of using the latest in production and using and reusing tags. So without going, and we've talked about that multiple times in the show, I actually talk about that in my Node.js course. Um, the, the 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 main issue with that is that you, you in your production environments or in any of your server environments, it will be hard and uh, more effort at any moment in time for you to figure out exactly what's running there. Okay, because everything's got the same tag, so it always looks like the same thing. So how you know now you have to start going and looking at SHA hashes or environment variables to kind of figure out, hey, what are we are we really running the up, most updated thing here? And it also makes it hard 
when you're developing how to know it, what version you're running on that's from the registry. You know, are we? Am I running the same one that's in production? I don't really know it. I I have to go you know miss and ma- mix match all the environments and kind of figure it all out. It becomes sort of a, an, a investigative story where you have to go diagnose is latest really latest. The way to solve that is to never reuse the tags, but that requires you to come up with a different CI process. So, um, and I wrote this down the other day. Should have put it on the internet. And I don't think I did. Someone was asking in Slack. Um, but essentially, the, the short version of that is you should probably change to building all your images with tags that are based either on the job ID inside your CI system, if you want to depend on those, or on the commit ID of your Docker commit or your uh, git commits. Sorry, your git commits. So commit ID or job ID, one of those things. Um, you can try date-based uh, or maybe date-based plus commit ID or something like that if you want. Um, date-based gets a little tricky because if you have parallel builds, they would have to you'd basically have to make sure that it had down to the second um, so that you don't accidentally get two images with the same. Hopefully, you don't have two finish in the exact same second <laughs> um, or start. I guess it would be based on the start date. So um, you get those and you get that unique ID. And then later, once they're successfully built and pushed for that ID, if for developer convenience, and for troubleshooting convenience on for local machine work only, you wanted to set up maybe something that's like a prod tag for whatever's in production or a staging tag for whatever's in staging. And so it would be a second tag, but not the tag that's used for production deployments and not the, the key tag that's used for troubleshooting and monitoring and all that. What you really want to be doing is if you're, let's say you're deploying a compose file into Swarm, you want to take those images and you want to take those tags and make them environment variables in your YAML. And then with your CI solution, it already knows the tag because it just made the tag and pushed it to, to the repo, right? It pushed it up to Docker Hub or whatever. And then you're going to take that and maybe you'll set it to, um, uh, let's say it's, it's going to be git commit based. So the git commit uh, hash, a short one, is the tag that you're using, right? Hopefully those don't con- uh, collide over time. They might eventually, but... Um, you do that. And then it pushes it because it successfully, only when it successfully builds the image, it pushes it. And then next it uh, says, well, now that I've pushed it, I'm going to deploy it to my service because maybe you have a staging environment where it's going to automatically deploy the latest release. So then it will take that, make it an environment variable, and then do the Docker Swarm de- you know, stack deploy, Docker stack deploy command. And that will pull in the environment variable for the tag of the image. That's how you automate that. So now your now your servers in production or in this in this case staging are never going to have to worry about pull. Your CI is never going to have to worry about pull because you're never using the latest. You're never really reusing tags, and so your servers in production will you know, and your logging in production, all those things will now be tracking that new tag based on ID. Right. Next thing is it's going to for convenience only, like you know, if you just wanted to run the latest thing on your local machine. Or if you're a developer who says, I wonder if this, you know, I'm, I'm having a problem with my development environment. I wonder if it's the same problem if I pull the latest what's in production, right? So instead of that developer saying, I got to go research what we just deployed. I got to go look at the CI solution and investigate my jobs. What, that, what you can do for convenience there is have your CI solution only once it's successfully deployed the staging. It then gives another tag to that same image called staging or something. Uh, whatever the environment is called, and then pushes that up to get Docker Hub. 
but you've got to make sure you educate your team that that is not that is not a guaranteed tag to be to be used for any official purposes. It's basically a tag for convenience, so that if on my local machine I just want to compare production to staging, I can do a quick Docker compose um, that uses those tags and then force a pull, and that way I know I'm running the staging and production versions without having to go analyze like my CI logging solution or my CI, um, you know, my production monitoring or whatever, right? I don't have to go investigate. I can basically look at the image tags to know which ones are in staging, which ones are in production, but those aren't the same ones that are actually being used in production. Um, I hope that makes sense. Um, but that will get you all, that, at that point, you'll never have to use the dash dash pull in CI because you're not reusing tags. Hopefully that helps. All right. And Siri's talking to me. All right, good question. Um, I'm looking at live chat. That looks good. All right. Uh, is there a way to use health checks to have a slow health check, say five minutes, but a quick startup? It seems if I have a five-minute health check, then rolling updates can take a long time. Um, interesting. So, uh, Billy, uh, if you're still on, uh, I'm assuming we're talking about Swarm. I think you had a, you did have the previous question, right? Yeah. Uh, you were talking about CI, but I'm not sure if you're talking about Swarm or Kubernetes. Kubernetes has two types of health checks. Swarm only has one. Um, so. Uh, health checks, the, the way to get health checks right are, um, you know, in terms of startup is that you have to make sure, uh, basically you probably don't, you probably want a health check more than every five minutes, right? Um, so I'm not sure why you want a slow health check. Maybe, maybe your health checks are expensive in terms of CPU processing. So you don't want to overload your app and that's fair. That makes sense. Um, but that does mean like if your app crashes right after the last health check it could be up to five minutes before uh your you know docker even knows that there's a problem right so i, I wouldn't say necessarily you need five seconds but maybe it's something like 30 seconds which is the default all right so the trick there is that you're um you can't change the health check timing um at least not in a single line command right you could always do an update later but technically uh, let's see, I'm not sure if you change the, the health check in Swarm with an update command, if it will technically replace the containers. It might replace them. I'm not really sure on that. Sometimes with Swarm, uh, stack updates and service updates uh, depends on which options you change whether or not it actually redeploys the containers. I'm not sure about health check time. Um, so no, there isn't that, isn't that way to build in. But the thing about startup is that you have to... Um, you have to make sure, so Docker will basically, it, if the health check is failing on startup, that's fine. And there's a health check grace period. And all that grace period means is that if it fails, let's say the grace period is 30 seconds. If the health check is failing inside that 30 seconds, let's say I tell my health check to run every five seconds, my grace period is 30. If it's running every five seconds and it's failing, that's fine as long as it gets ready or it, it returns a success before the 30 seconds is up but if here's the thing that most people don't realize if on the first health check in the first five seconds it's ready and it returns a good result to the health check then docker goes oh i don't need a grace period the thing's already ready i'm good to go so one of the problems that people have and maybe this isn't your issue is that they make long health checks 
because maybe it's a database and they have us, it has to do things during startup. It has to create users and do all that stuff like a MySQL would, or maybe it's an app that has to create caching or something. So the app takes a while to spin up. Um, what you have to make sure is that that app during startup doesn't return a successful health check until it's truly ready. So it will force you to change your health checks around a little bit. If you go check out, um, and what's interesting about this problem is the way that the, the MySQL solves it. So, um, no. Because MySQL and Postgres both have startup scripts that can take a while. I mean, a while meaning more than a few seconds. And so, in their Docker file, they run a script. Down here, there's an entry point that starts every time. That's how you use entry point typically is you're running a script that does startup. And just so that the health check against MySQL doesn't work during startup, because technically what's happening in this startup script, if we go look at it, is that it starts up MySQL, does a bunch of things like creates a default database, creates a user. And during that time, MySQL is running. So if there was a health check, it could be pinging MySQL and return true, um, it's all good, you know, exiting zero. And then Docker would go, oh, uh, MySQL is okay. Let's go live. Like I'm, I'm ready to receive connections. But then at the end of the startup script, it stops MySQL and then starts it up again in daemon mode. And during that time, then Docker could do a health check and fail. And then it would basically be crashing your container on startup every single time. Like it would try to start up, it would, it would fail. If you go into this shell script, you'll see that it, start, it basically starts up MySQL down here. And then at the very end, it stops MySQL. And, and then it puts out, you know, it says, I'm done. I'm now shutting down MySQL and then starting it up in daemon mode to, um, or daemon mode, however you want to pronounce it, uh, to be ready for connections. The way that it does this is that it prevents any connections from the health check during startup by only starting the service during the script. It only starts this on uh, localhost, I believe, so that it's not going to be able to receive the connection for the health check from the IP address. I think that's how it does it. It might actually do it in socket only mode. Um, yeah, it might. Yep. Yeah. So it's doing it in socket only mode. So I was a little wrong there. Um, essentially preventing the health check from ever working during startup. So this is a long answer to your question, but in essence, if you're delaying the health check or you're making slow health checks simply because of this startup problem, because I have seen people do that as a workaround, this is the correct workaround, not what you're doing. All right. Um, and I'm not seeing any of the comments from you, Billy. So I'm going to assume that that helps. All right. Um, let's even get through some fast rapid fire questions because we're running out of time. All right. Can you suggest how to install Docker on Raspberry? I saw Raspberry hardware is available for sale online, but how to start. Um, so there are, I should probably make a page on this, but if you, uh, search Docker, uh, Raspberry Pi, and, uh, you're going to find a couple of great websites. The two that I recommend, they're both Docker captains. Um, with is uh hyperiot or hyperiot however you want to say it um they are they have a bunch of documentation on docker and they have a special image actually or a special build of docker i think it's a build they don't not, don't quote me on that i just know they do docker stuff and i think originally they had special builds but now i don't think they need to because there are official ones i'm not really sure on that and then alex's website alex ellis 
uh, has tons of stuff about pies. So I would go to those two websites um, and we'll get those links into, into the chat. All right. Oh, I got to post, I got to put the actual screen on. All right. So, uh, yeah. So go to Hyperite and yeah. And then, uh, Alex Ellis's website. And those two, those two people talk a lot about, they don't talk exclusively about Raspberry Pi, but they talk a lot about it and they will hopefully uh, get you started on getting it installed. Basically, uh, you, I mean, getting Docker on Raspberry is not the hard part. Um, it's actually, a, as far as I know, a really easy setup. So, and did you know your local machine, Docker Mac, Docker for Mac or Docker for Windows, the Docker Desktop Edition, can run ARM-based images locally on your machine. It emulates ARM right on your machine. So, uh, if you want to test images in ARM or even build images in ARM so that you can then run them on a Raspberry Pi, you can do that on Docker Desktop. You don't actually have to build on a Raspberry Pi. So, tip there. All right, let's see. Yeah, so Billy, sorry I didn't read your last comment there. Um, uh, yes. So if you have, yeah, if you want to do slow checks, um, yeah, no, and Swarm, there's only one health check. Uh, with Kubernetes, Kubernetes, you can look, there's two health checks. One is basically, am I ready for connections? And one is, am I okay? And so you would probably want the am I okay um, to be more frequent and then, uh, or less frequent, and then the, am I ready for... Um, Am I ready for connections to be more frequent? A lot of things that don't really matter if they're offline for a while and checking them every 30 seconds or so is producing a greater load than the actual containers. Yeah. And that's a challenge. I mean, you, you probably at that point are going to want a, uh, a less taxing health check um, so that you don't have your health checks doing so much work. And then for true, true health, right? Because here's the thing. Docker is not a monitoring solution. It, the health check is not meant to replace a monitoring solution. It is just to simply say, is this container running? So if your health checks are too taxing to run every 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 seconds, let's say 30 seconds is the max. If it's going to be more than that, then I would probably recommend that your health check for Docker is simpler, less taxing. Uh, you find a different way to health check uh, that won't require so much CPU use. And then your monitoring solution, your external monitoring solution, that's going to do the true integration monitoring, right? It's going to make sure that your app's talking to your database and your database is getting backed up and all those things. That solution will be the more taxing one that you can control. But Docker isn't meant to really do all that. It's just simply saying, hey, is the container running and is your app responding? Um, if your app is having to check a ton of things, then that's probably not the right place for that health check. So hopefully that helps. All right. Um, please explain K8s. I will do it in an elevator pitch. You have Docker. You install Docker on more than one machine. And you get tired of jumping around between all those different machines. And you need a way to basically have one command line that runs all the containers on all the machines from one place. So that you can control it all like it's a, it's a big hive mine, like it's a Borg. That's container orchestration. And there are lots of flavors of container orchestration. Kubernetes is probably the most popular, especially on the internet. It's talked about the most. Another good one is Swarm. 
Um, if you're on AWS, then you might use ECS as an alternative. Um, but Kubernetes has lots of distributions. So unlike Swarm, which is made by Docker and, and given out by Docker, uh, Kubernetes has a what we call vanilla, which is the, the pure GitHub release that most people shouldn't run because it's hard to get right and hard to get secure. Uh, but you, so most people should use a distribution of Kubernetes. So Docker, Docker makes one, Rancher makes one, VMware Wake makes one, um, Azure makes one, Amazon makes one, DigitalOcean makes one, um, and there's over 80 distributions. And so think of it like Linux distributions. And you just need to pick one that's mostly aligned with your setup. If you do the Red Hat OpenShift distribution, which is a popular option, that's because you're probably running Red Hat or CentOS. So you want to look at that. Um, if you're want more of a purist with Docker and you like the way that Docker does tooling, you might buy Docker Enterprise and you get Kubernetes with that. So it's a, essentially a system that looks at what you told it to do, usually in YAML. And then it looks at a bunch of servers, one or a thousand or 10,000. And it says, okay, you've given me instructions in YAML. I'm going to make that happen on all these servers. And it just runs, it runs the apps you told it to. Uh, and it makes decisions about keeping those up and health checks and all that for you. So it automates a lot of that. It's basically just a decision-making engine. It looks at what you've asked it to do. It's a differencing algorithm. It looks at what you've asked it to do. It looks at production and says, do they match? If they don't match, I got work to do. I got to fix something. And that's, and it just does that constantly every second. Uh, that's basically what all the orchestrators do. They, and then, you know, the only difference between them all is the functionality and feature set of the flexibility that they have. And in general, Swarm is easier to use, uh, but limited to the 20% of features that we all need. Kubernetes has uh, all the, you know, a ton of the features, like, you know, uh, just there's more features all the time. It's growing in scope and, and, um, but it is more complicated and more resource intensive to run. So you, I generally tell people, try Swarm first, see if it works for you. If you can get by with the features that are in Swarm, great. You just saved yourself a ton of time. Um, do you need more features and functionality? Then you then you can't get it to work. And you're limited by Swarm, and you you need more advanced functionality that you can get there. Then go and look at Kubernetes. That's probably your best bet. Um, unless you're exclusive Amazon, and then you might consider ECS because they, that's been around a long time and is a, a pretty easy way to run containers without with, without having to do Kubernetes. All right. Good, uh, good test. I did it in what sixty seconds. So that's an elevator pitch. Um, all right, scrolling through the questions, we're going to get the last few here. Uh, on the vagrant question, if you want to do is talk from vagrant to an app running on Swarm, you have to expose the port in Docker container, and you can connect using localhost. Interesting. So uh, I didn't know that. So in vagrant, oh, so in vagrant, no, I don't. That's a good question, biker. If vagrant does maybe I'm, maybe you're uh, you're answering it more I'm scrolling down. <laughs> I didn't know that would work, but uh I'm going to keep scrolling. Um Is there some support for Apache Airflow on Docker Swarm the same way we have the Kubernetes operators? There's no such thing as operators in Swarm. So, I don't know Apache Airflow. I don't I don't know what it is. Um I might have been forgot. Um to author workflows. Most of these things that are extending or expanding the scope of Kubernetes, they're Kubernetes specific. You can't use them on any other orchestrators. They're focused on Kubernetes. Um, Swarm, th that's kind of the point of Swarm. 
uh, if you know Swarm comes with you know you you have at least options for using proxies or any one of any one of the proxies you want, but they're nothing special about them. They're just running as containers. It can use third party storage, and um, you can use third party monitoring and logging. But if you want to change the behavior of how Swarm works, then unless you want to make your own Swarm from their open source <laughs> toolkits, then Swarm is not for you, right? If you want custom operators, if you want CRDs. Um, or custom resources, all these things that we have concepts for in Kubernetes, then Swarm is probably not for you. Swarm is meant to solve the 20% problem that most of us have. Uh, like, there, for example, there's currently no third-party service mesh for Swarm because it's um, you get DNS service mesh, essentially. You don't really get service mesh. You get DNS service discovery out of the box with Swarm if you want the advanced features that all these new service meshes are using. I don't know that anyone's got one to work yet with Swarm. Not that they couldn't, but um, a lot of these companies, are, they're just focused on Kubernetes because when people need that level of customization, they're probably already on Kubernetes to begin with. Um, so, yeah. All right. How is Portainer different from Kubernetes? Well, Portainer is only a web GUI for Swarm. It uh, manages Docker, Docker engines on different servers and then manages Swarm if you have Docker Swarm installed. Um, it... Uh, Kubernetes is a basically an alternative to Swarm as a orchestrator and has its own web GUIs options that you would layer on top of it. You would add different web dashboards. Um, and then there is a default one, the web dashboard, and then you can get third-party ones. So um, that would answer that question. Uh, see you, Michael. Thanks. Uh, Michael Irwin, Docker Captain, was on the, was on the chat for today. Uh, let's see. Bam Bam asks, uh, how is your K8's course going? Will you cover service mesh like Itzio? Uh, I will, so uh, Kubernetes course is still forthcoming. Uh, we're currently working on Docker mastery updates to add some Kubernetes stuff to it. Service mesh will not be in Docker mastery because I feel like it's still a way too advanced of a, I mean, basically service mesh is once you're an expert in Kubernetes and you have large Kubernetes systems, then, and by large, I mean not a dozen servers like a lot of servers and a lot of containers, then service mesh is probably something you should look at. Uh, at that point, once you have many different Kubernetes clusters and, you, and, and that sort of thing, um, I think it's still highly complex and the, the solutions are evolving so rapidly that it's not clear which one we should all choose. Um, there's no like single leader in the space. So uh, I don't plan on service mesh being a big topic in my Kubernetes course. I think, honestly, it's going to have to have its own course because it's going to need, um, you're going to have to talk about the different tools and how to integrate it with different setups. And then, you know, like the, the new one that's uh, Meshery, that just, is it Meshery? Uh, Containerous. Let me go um, look up the new one from... I'm probably <laughs> misspelling it because it's not mashery. It's mesh. Mesh. I, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce it properly. Uh, I'm sure that it's on their website. So let me just go there real quick. Um, products. All right. Oh, and they've got a 
They got a nifty URL. So just a new one was released this week. Let me pull this up. Uh, so a, uh, a, an additional new uh, service mesh option. And, and so my, I guess my whole point here is, um, I guess you say mesh. <laughs> you, uh, it's a mesh service mesh um, from the same people that make traffic, essentially. And I, I haven't tried it out yet, but I'm interested in checking this one out because service mesh is complicated enough right now. We do need some simpler solutions for people that don't have hundreds and hundreds of nodes and thousands and thousands of containers. So I'm, I'm definitely interested in service mesh. I haven't committed to a course on it, but I'm definitely want to talk about it more. I just don't know that it's going to be bundled in my courses yet. I think in the, in the Kubernetes course, we're definitely going to talk about what service mesh is but I may not be giving you the full on solution on how to deploy all the different options and how to choose one and all that. Right. So that, that's a great question. Um, it's just going to be a hard topic to do all at the same time while you're also doing Kubernetes. Cause really if you're learning Kubernetes, you don't yet want to learn service mesh. It's a, it's a whole other level on top of, uh, of Kubernetes that isn't is optional. All right. Um, it, let's see, Docker, network create, attachable. It doesn't work properly on my, um, is it possible to attach containers manually with or without it flat attachable? Um, it doesn't work properly to attach containers. So, uh, attachable. So I'm assuming you're talking about swarm. So we're talking about attachable because attachable is a swarm thing. So in swarm by default, when you have overlay networks, they you can't talk to those overlay networks unless you're on that overlay network. So if you do a, like a Docker run, uh, then that container by default won't be able to get into overlay networks because it's not technically in Swarm. You'd have to do a service create. So um, I guess the issue here, I don't understand the functionality of it attachable. So when you create a overlay network and you add in the attachable, that allows you to do Docker run and specify the overlay network. And then that single container can also then be in the overlay network with the swarm services that are in that overlay network. Uh, by default, if you create overlay network without attachable, it's basically locked down. It's secure so that only swarm services can, can see into that overlay network. Because the reason is, here's the real reason. In Swarm, what you can do, just like what you can do with Kubernetes, is you take your managers, your the bosses, right, and you put them off the, outside the firewall, right, or I'm sorry, inside the firewall on a backend network that's not accessible from the internet, and then you take all your workers and you put them in maybe like a DMZ, right. So let's say that one of those worker nodes gets hacked, and someone is able to get onto that server. Technically, with the default overlay networks, they when you create an overlay network someone on that node couldn't get into the overlay networks, especially if they're encrypted. So if you use IPsec, the, the encryption option with overlay networks, then someone on that node wouldn't even have the IPsec keys if they didn't have, um, if they didn't have any services on those overlay networks. And then if they could use Docker run commands on that server, because maybe they're, and maybe you have a legitimate use, maybe you have junior sysadmins that are, have access to the, worker nodes for maintenance, but they don't have access to servant swarm managers. And so when they're on the worker, they can do Docker run, but they can't do service create because they're only on a worker. They're not on a manager. So overlay networks protect the swarm a little bit by preventing Docker runs by default from getting on those overlay networks. And you have to use the attachable, but you unfortunately have to use attachable 
when you create these networks. So if you're in a, in a, in a situation where you need to get into an overlay network and you did not use attachable because you wanted to be secure by default and you liked the protections that it gave you, let's say you did that and you wanted to get in that node. So the way you would, you could do that if you needed to get like a, a single container inside that overlay network is you do a service create and then you use a constraint. So you look up constraints. So service create and the constraint option to limit the containers where the places where it can run, where the containers can run, limit them to the host name or basically the node that you're on. Um, and you use the node name technically in Swarm, not the host name. They're usually the same thing, but the node name and you constrain it to that node name. And there's examples all over Google of how to do this. And then you can basically then do a Docker exec into that container and have access to the overlay network. Does that make sense? So you're technically starting a swarm, new Swarm service that's on the same overlay network with only one container and you're forcing that container to start on the machine you're on, right? Or the machine that you need to be on, whichever one that is. Um, and that's a way to get around that limitation if you don't have attachable, all right? Hopefully that helps. All right, where can we save usernames and passwords and client certificates in Docker? Um, if you're just using Docker Run, it does not have a secret store. So you would need to get an external one like Vault um, or AWS's solution. You, there is no Docker encrypted stuff. If you create a swarm or you use Kubernetes and you set up Kubernetes with an encryption, um, those two solutions have a secrets store that you would store that stuff in. All right. And so the orchestrators, that's one of the problems they try to solve is allowing you to store your secrets in a centralized repository that's encrypted and protected so that um, only the nodes and the containers that need them can get them. But Docker straight out of the box does not do that. Good question. Uh, when a container starts, what is a default health check value? It seems to be either null or unhealthy because our app proxies refuse to display until after the first interval set healthy. Um, so uh, when, so uh, yeah, I think I talked about this earlier, uh, Biker. So if you, let's see if, um, yeah, it takes that long. Yeah, if the interval is 30 seconds, right. Because it doesn't, it won't start the first health check until the interval as you know, it starts the interval countdown when the container starts. And the the thing is, is Swarm's virtual IP will not send connections to that container until the health check is healthy. Or, um, uh, and that, and if you remember from my earlier conversation, that that is related to the startup, the grace period. So look up grace period, because if you have a health check that's starting every five seconds or created every five seconds, but you want to give the container at least 30 seconds to start up, you can increase the, the grace period. And as long as the health checks are unhealthy in that first 30 seconds, Swarm won't try to recreate it, right? It won't, it won't crash it and say, oh, it's not healthy after the first five seconds. Uh, uh, how dare you? I, I need to restart. <laughs> um, so you got to get those all together to work. Um, but yeah, uh, if your problem is, is your containers are taking too long to start. I mean, if the container starts in five seconds and you have a 30 second health check and you're tired of waiting 30 seconds for them to start, then you essentially need to lower your health checks down. You need to have a, a, fa a health check that's more often. Um, that's really the only way in Swarm to solve that. Um, yeah, here we go. It's a good example. One example of a Docker tag. This is coming back, I think, to the CI CD question. Um, yeah, one way, one way example for Docker tags that make it easier to debug is branch um, CI job and then the git sha. So 
Yeah, that's uh, super informative. And if you're automating this stuff with CI anyway, right? If you're using environment variables to have CI push to your know, like your your even your production, but maybe just your staging environments, and you don't have to manually type these in all the time. Then uh, the length of it doesn't really matter, right? Like as long as it as long as it's automated, that's a great solution. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, the build ID for Jenkins builds. And a lot of times, this all depends. Like these CI tags, uh, there is no one way, one size fits all. It, as long as it's uniquely identifiable and it's there's no chance of it sort of um, uh, being repeated. If you keep your builds forever, uh, technically like a build ID and a, you know, if it's not a full shot, technically, I guess these could all be reproduced accidentally over time. Um, but, you know, if you had a build ID plus a commit ID, that's probably, you know, I, I, I could see... Uh, that never happens. I don't have anyone that does the full SHA as the ID, as the tag. That's probably unnecessary. Um, but it, it's nice, and it, it's nice to put descriptive stuff in there to also help it. So I like these ideas of um, stuff like putting the branch name in there, so that you can at least identify them a little bit. You don't have to go reference multiple places. Really, for me, the goal is is people can go and look at the repo for the the images and not then have to reference that and go look at the code repo and then also into the Jenkins logs and like try to correlate it all, right? It's nice in one place to have that information. And so I dig it when people come up with these. But to be honest, the team workflow is what really matters. If the team is so used to having the CI solution on some sort of status page where they can see all these and that's where they go by default and they don't even want to go look at the image repo, uh, that's fine too. If, if that's the way the team works, and you just want to try to fit this into their workflow, that's that's great. That's perfect. Cause um, you know, changing the not changing their workflow when you don't have to is always gonna make everybody more happy, right? Um yeah, the more verbose way, yep. Yeah, so that you when you're debugging, you have more metadata. Yeah, exactly. So um yeah, I don't think either way is wrong. I think it really depends on your tooling and the that stuff you have all set up. If you have a really good monitoring status panel that's showing you um all these things already that maybe is on on the wall or maybe some web page that you can pull up really quick to see you know what's in production what git what's the last what's the git job sorry what's the git repo uh, commit tag that was the last one used what was the last job to push to production what was the job id of that and maybe a link the, all those links that you can sort of build into an automated panel that's talking to all these apis and then also you know verifying which which ids are in production and making sure that they're all matching like that, that would probably be a, a pretty cool web dashboard setup um, that would be probably a custom solution. The thing is, is what's happening now is these CI CD companies are getting it. They're figuring out that um, containers are taking a lot of their job away. <laughs> their job used to be about making sure that they had all these packs and things that could run, you know, all the tools and things you need to do on all these different agents. But as we put everything into containers, that's solving that problem in a better way, a more consistent way for the inter for the whole ecosystem. So the CI companies are are innovating, and I hope what I'm hoping they're going to do is eventually we're just going to have CI as like drag and drop. Like I'm dragging in GitHub, I'm dragging in this and that, and it and I can drag things around, and it creates a workflow that just builds images. I tell it which stage to build, and I don't have to create 300 lines of YAML to do a CI job. You know, I, that would be ideal. Uh, I would prefer that. All right, just uh, we're running a little long today, but uh, I think we're out of just about out of questions. Uh, let's see, is there a way to set a delay for services in Docker Compose file? We start Postgres and see the DB seed process takes some time. Is there any way to hold other services until seed process is over? Yes, I have your answer. Hopefully, you're still on the call. 
Um, the answer is you want to use version two Docker Compose files, not version three, but version two, because version two is ideal for local development. Version three Compose files are ideal for Swarm stacks. So um, use a version two file, and then you get a new a feature in two that was not put into three because it's really a locally own, local only developer feature. And that is you add health checks to each service and then you add a depends on, you've probably seen these, depends on, you add a condition and that's in the documentation. In fact, if you go to, to the compose documentation and you change to version two and then you scroll down to depends on, You will see this example, and this is your solution right there on, in the documentation, hiding the whole time. And I didn't know it either. And eventually, I figured it out. And now, if you take my Node.js course, Docker for Node.js course, I talk all about this. I show you examples. You go through examples, and you learn how to do this. But what you do here is you add. Basically, you need to add a health check to your database, and then, uh, and I give you examples in that course. Um, so that's BrettFisher.com/node. Uh, that'll get you to the course. And in there, I give you an example. Uh, and it's node specific, but it really works. I mean, you just have to, you know, the, the health checks work the same with databases. It all works the same. It's just, I I only added it to the node course. Um, so you add the health check to your database, and then you add the condition on your web end, web front, web front end, that says, don't start this one until the service is healthy for the database. And that's a true, it's better than a wait for a script. It's It's great. And that way, when you do a Docker Compose up, only the things that can start do start. And then it waits and it'll sit there. You'll see it waiting and waiting for the healthy. Uh, and then it'll start the other pieces of that puzzle. So hopefully that helps you. Great question. Um, yeah, the wait for it script to me is legacy. Uh, that uh, and once this feature showed up a couple of years ago, um, the wait for it script does work, but it's it, this is in my mind, this is better because it doesn't require another yet another script, right? It's built in and health checks are good anyway. You should have health checks. Um, and, and, and if you just use this, the health check for a database is usually just a one liner and you can get those. If you just look up Docker file health check on Google, you should find Docker's official GitHub repo for that. Um, but all of that is in my node course. So you can check that out if you'd like. Um, RabbitMQ is the best uh, option for message or we have to think any other solution when message lots of queue Docker request processing. Um, this is not really a, a, a Docker question because message queuing is not a container specific thing, right? It's regardless of your architecture or how, whether you're using Docker or not, um, you know, message queuing is message queuing. So I don't, I'm not going to give you an opinion on message queuing because uh, it doesn't really matter. Docker runs them all. So uh, it's not going to run one over different than the other. Uh, basically, Docker runs things natively on the host. So it's not going to, they're not going to perform differently. They're not going to act differently than they would if you weren't running them in containers. So um, not a bad question, but the answer is it don't matter. Do them all. Do whichever one you like. Um, thanks for the Kubernetes course, love. I am, we're working hard every day on that. So um, we got a whole team involved this time and it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Uh, what kind of stuff can we do with the Docker socket? Well, the Docker socket is simply a way to talk to the Docker, Docker API. 
and it talks with HTTP. So you use that Docker sock to speak HTTP protocol to um, Docker, and you can do that with through a file rather than having to bind a TCP port, which um, it works. So almost all the management tools, any management tool, um, technically Kubernetes is using the Docker socket. That's how Kubernetes runs things through Docker on top of Docker. And if you're using Portainer or Swarm, they all use that that socket. So. All right. Well, that's it for the questions today. I think, oh, one last question at the very end. Um, just in before the bell, when I run Docker Compose test means I'm running test cases in multiple images. I have scripts running inside container. Um, okay. Yes, you should. You should totally do that. I'm not sure if that's a question, um, but and I don't see any other questions, so I'm not sure if that's related. But yeah, you, that, you would totally do that. Run your test cases uh, in your images. So I have my image builds run like NPM test for node projects. I have that as a stage inside my Docker file. So every time uh, I build my Docker file, if I run, if I want to, I run it through that stage and it will do that. If test case fails, still Docker compose returning exit zero. Yes. And the way you do that so what we're talking about here, and this is a great topic that we should probably talk about next time because we're, run, we're running out of time. But uh, Docker Compose has, um, has an option for this. So when you're doing Docker Compose in development, um, you're usually using it just to spin up things and using it to run code, right? But when you're using it in CI, you're usually, it's just there to build and test things. And so what you need to um, build, some of you probably know what I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about here. Um, so there is, there is an option and I'm not seeing it. There is an option in Docker, uh, Docker Compose that will fail based on a specific service that fails. So here, what we're talking about here is that when Docker Compose up, it spins up multiple containers and the, it doesn't know when to fail because if one of those fails, it doesn't want to crash the whole thing. It, you know, maybe that's something that you expected for it to fail or it, it quit, you know, with a good error. So with Docker Compose, um, all right, so there's this option, abort a container exit stops all containers if any container was stopped. All right, so there's that one. But I think there's another one. So if you use that option, that gets you usually what you want. I thought there was an option that... would look at a specific container service. Ah, here we go. Right here. So the exit code from, they were all on the, the first command and I missed it. Uh, exit code from. So if you do these two together, when you do a Docker compose up and it runs all the containers and let's say one of them is running the tests. So this one will exit the whole thing once the first container has an error and exits with an error. And then the exit code from will cause, basically it'll pass through. So whatever the exit code is from the container that you're testing, right? Because if you're caring about the actual testing of a specific container, you'll exit, you'll do that op option when you do an up. 
and it will spit out when Docker Compose exits, it'll spit out the exit code of that one container. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is, uh, those are the two options. And you want to use that in CI. Most of us, we won't realize that this is a problem that you want to always put in the CI until you start doing CI stuff and you and things don't, things fail, but Docker Compose keeps running and that that's a problem, right? You want it to actually quit. So check that out. So thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.